The History Channel Original Podcast. Sports History This Week. November 14th, 1970. I'm Kalen Jones. It's one of the most tragic events in the history of American sports. After a 17-14 loss to East Carolina, the Thundering Herd football team, along with their coaching staff and two dozen local boosters, all from Marshall University, board a plane for Huntington, West Virginia. The first hour of Southern Airlines Flight 932 goes smoothly. But as they approach Tri-State Airport, between the rain, the fog, and the darkness, the flight crew seems unable to maintain the proper elevation. There were a lot of things here that made this dramatically less safe than normal. Co-pilot Jerry Smith calls out his elevation readings to the tower. 126, 100, and then nothing. A chartered jet carrying the Marshall University football team home to West Virginia crashed last night as it tried to land at the Huntington Airport. All 75 persons aboard were killed. It was the worst plane crash in the United States so far this year. It's still the deadliest plane crash to affect any professional or amateur sports team in U.S. history. This team under head coach Rick Tolley was making great, great strides right before the tragedy. It was an up-and-coming program. It was certainly headed into the right right direction until it was essentially decimated. But football is the last thing on anyone's mind as federal investigators sort through the wreckage in search of survivors for hours in the fog and rain. Today, a fatal plane crash changes a football program, a university, and a community forever. How was Marshall University able to keep going through these unimaginable circumstances? And how was the Marshall football team, the Thundering Herd, able to come together and rebound from this tragedy with extraordinary results both on and off the field? Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. When you hear the words Marshall University football, what comes to mind? For many fans, the first thing they think of is the plane crash, especially since 2006, when the movie We Are Marshall, starring Matthew Fox, Anthony Mackie, and Matthew McConaughey, was released. This is your opportunity to rise from these ashes and grab glory. We are. Marshall! We are. Marshall! We are. But in terms of the football team on the field, people might think of a powerhouse team that won 114 games in the 1990s, the most of any program in the country. Chad Pennington throwing the football to Randy Moss. Marshall was, I mean, kind of a household 
name there. And they'd won a couple of AA national titles in the 90s. And I heard recently, the last 24 years, they've gone to 17 bowl games. Back in 1968, it was a very different story. Marshall was not a good team in terms of wins and losses for several years prior to the plane crash. In fact, Marshall did not have a winning football season, a winning record from 1964 until 1984. The program had almost ended in the late 60s, the football program, because of a lack of interest. The school at one time had difficulties of paying a quarterly power bill. Patrick Garvin is a college football journalist. He's also written 11 books, including A Coach in Progress, a memoir that he co-authored with Red Dawson, who coached football at Marshall from 1968 to 1972. At one point, late 60s, they were the losingest football program. I think they had dropped 27 games in a row. They were one away from breaking the NCAA record. In 1968, the Thundering Herd go 0-9-1, losing by an average of 25 points per game. And if that isn't embarrassing enough, the school comes under fire for recruiting violations. They didn't have the budget to fly a couple coaches to Texas or to California. What they could do was send out flyers to all these high schools and high school's prospects, basically saying, if you make the team, they'd basically be able to give you a scholarship. Well, how they were able to get these scholarships were bank loans from a local bank, and that's a no-no. Reports also say that alumni fund the scheme for active players. $15 for beating a conference opponent, $10 for beating a non-conference opponent, and $4 for losing but playing a good game. A report released in May of 1969 reveals that Marshall committed 144 recruiting infractions. Back then, there was a lot of gray area, I think. However, with the NCAA, kind of like now, that didn't jive. And they were kicked out of the MAC because of it. Kicked out of the MAC, or the Mid-American Conference, Marshall's home for the last 15 years. But despite this scandal and the poor performance by the varsity team, there's actually some hope for the future of the program. The freshman team goes 5-0 that year, featuring a few players with major potential. Guys like Ted Shoebridge, if you look up in the Marshall record book, I think he still holds or is in the rankings of some seasonal records. Running back Joe Hood, according to Red Dawson, is still probably the third best athlete he's ever seen out on the field. 1970 is supposed to be the season they put it all together, with 16 out of 22 starters returning. They're even favored in the season opener. For the first time in a long time, they're actually expected to win a game. They had struggled so much for so long, and they had so much promise. That's Lori Thompson, the head of special collections at Marshall. She and Lindsay Harper, the archivist for Marshall University, were instrumental in helping us put together our research for this episode. The recruits were looking better, new coaches, new energy, new support, hopefully getting our support back from the community. The Thundering Herd fly to Kinston, North Carolina for their ninth game of the season. 
Marshall only made one plane trip every two years. Every other place was within driving distance, although it, it probably, they're lengthy driving distances. The flight they took to East Carolina in 1968 were on DC-3 planes, which I believe they stopped being made around World War II. But this time, Marshall opts for a much bigger and much fancier airplane, the DC-9. At the time, it was the latest and greatest with updated uh, motors and avionics. And why do they make the change for this trip? There were 10 prominent Huntington community residents coming on this trip, eight of the 10, including their wives. Four businessmen, three physicians, a dentist, a city councilman, and even a member of the West Virginia legislature are among the football players, coaches, and fight crew on the plane. The boosters, they did pay $50 to get to ride along with the team and kind of talk with the team members. And that payment covered their flight, their hotel room, and um, game tickets. They did that as like a way to build camaraderie with the team members so that the community could feel more involved. Marshall made sure that this trip was going to be something special. As Red put it, they went 100%. I mean, it was a big deal. The game against East Carolina University is a thrilling one. Down 17-14 in the fourth quarter, Marshall quarterback Ted Shoebridge takes the snap with 30 seconds left and is flagged for intentional grounding, spoiling a late drive. And it kind of ruined the last minutes of the game. So they boarded the plane after the game, kind of disheartened and a little upset for losing. The DC-9 takes off from Kinston, North Carolina at 6.38 p.m. All seems normal. Around 7.30 p.m., the plane approaches Tri-State Airport, which is located in the mountains of Huntington, West Virginia. Several different factors make this an extremely difficult landing scenario. It was a dark and very rainy night with low visibility, but also the Huntington Airport is on top of a mountain, short runway, especially at that time for a jet. As one pilot said shortly after the crash, I think it was bound to happen because landing at Tri-State Airport at the time and all his years of experience was like landing a plane on an aircraft carrier. I spoke with Kit Darby, a retired Army and commercial pilot who now serves as an aviation instructor. Short runways are challenging. It was also nighttime, so nighttime reduces the, the visual inputs of what you can see, rainy, foggy, also reduces the visual. So they didn't have the airport in sight. Modern airplanes can, can land themselves. It certainly wasn't the case with this airplane or with this airport. And on top of that, the Tri-State Airport is missing one key piece of technology, one that the airport wanted but simply could not afford. Because Huntington's airport, which sits on top of a hill, has no approach radar system. The pilot had not indicated any problems before the crash. Normally we have an electronic glide slope, and this particular airport at the time didn't have that. What is a glide slope, and how important is it that the Tri-State Airport didn't have that? Well, it, it's crucial. It, it is an electronic beam that shows where the airplane should be as it approaches. Everybody can sort of visualize left and right, like the center line of a highway, 99 
95% of your approaches will have an electronic glide slope or a visual glide slope. At 7.36 p.m., the low-flying plane clips the top of several trees. Crew members in the air traffic control tower see a red glow west of the airport and know something has gone horribly wrong. News of the crash quickly begins to spread. The flight home ended here on a muddy hillside a half mile down the slope from the runway at Huntington's airport. The chartered DC-9, flying in through rain and fog, glanced off a ridge and then nosed down, shearing off trees and exploding in flames. Nobody on board survives the crash. Red all along was going to go to see a junior college prospect in Ferrum Junior College, which is in Virginia. So they drove to the game and on their way back, it came up on the radio that there was a crash. Red says he thinks he had heard it, but refused to accept it. Acting University President Donald Dedman heads straight to the crash site. When he first witnessed it, he actually had to take a step back, take a breather, lean up against the tree, wipe the sweat from his brow. And he was like, my God, those four parents, how are we going to tell them? They immediately got to work letting family members know that their child or their family member may have been on this flight. Marshall established South Hall as a campus space to house these family members flying in. Here's Red Dawson. And the state police had said you, they needed somebody at the doctors, uh, needed someone out there that knew the players and the boosters. And, uh, you know, he didn't know any football players. You know, he didn't, he didn't know many of the town people. And I knew him very well, and I knew I had to go out there. I grew up a lot that night, for sure. Just, it was just, it was just real hard times after that. Hard times for the students and the administration, including the school president, Donald Dedman. I'm sure that Dr. Dedman had mentors, just like every campus leader or every person has mentors. I'm sure that they went to their mentors and said, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to be a strong leader moving forward? I mean, nobody's ever faced anything like this, except Wichita. That's a reference to the Wichita State football team, which, in an eerie coincidence, had their own tragedy just six weeks earlier. Their plane crashed on the way to a game against Utah State, with 14 football players among the 31 victims. The Marshall football team actually held a moment of silence for Wichita State at their team dinner before their October 3rd game against Xavier. Both crashes are thoroughly investigated by the National Transportation Safety Board. It took about 18 months, I think, for the report to come out. And they interviewed everybody. They had the cockpit recorders at the time. They interviewed the, the staff on hand at the airport and determined that it was, it was probably, most likely, either a condition with, again, low visibility. All reports have indicated that there was no real pilot error. Still, the school, the community of Huntington, and the football team face an uncertain future. 
it's a story of resiliency and that the school, you know, very easily could have given up the football program. And it's a uh, kind of a celebration of the human spirit. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In the immediate aftermath of the plane crash on November 14, 1970, Marshall University suspends all classes and campus activities. Marshall football coach Red Dawson writes, Unlike many colleges, Marshall does not have its football players live in separate dorms or eat in separate dining areas. You either had a close relationship with someone on that plane, or you knew someone who did. Red said it, it was the most eerie thing. I mean, you would see people walking, just crying, crying as they walked to class. Students come together over the tragedy. For a time, they're able to overlook their differences. Marshall's kind of a melting pot of, of kids kind of all in that area, you know, not necessarily Southern kids, but a collection, Midwestern kids from the Appalachian Mountains. We're talking 1970. There were protests everywhere, from Vietnam to women's rights to racial equality. Craig Greenlee, one of the few members of the 1970 football team that was not on the plane, writes in his memoir, November Ever After, that a massive fight broke out between white and black students at an intramural football game when several white students reportedly displayed a Confederate flag. And that this happened literally the day before the crash. But after, those tensions seem to evaporate. I tell you, one of my favorite quotes from all of this, it, it appeared, I believe, in the Marshall Student newspaper. It said, uh, classmates were crying together. Long and short hair became one family. A good many protests going on at Marshall at the time, especially if you were compared to other universities throughout the country, but because of that tragedy, they became one, and all that was forgotten. After a few days, University President Donald Dedman speaks to the students. Marshall University will commence regular activities at 8 o'clock Wednesday morning. Uh, we're going back to school, and we're going back to school productively. We're doing this in honor of those who lost their lives Saturday night. 
at first I was like, whoa, that's really quick. That's really quick to kind of move on and get back to business as usual. But like 65% of the on-campus students had checked out of their dorms that weekend. So kind of you're losing a lot of your community when you're dealing with something that is so unprecedented. They sent a notice to faculty saying that students shouldn't be assigned homework, you shouldn't give exams, you shouldn't have large projects, and students aren't going to be penalized for their absences until after fall break. And I think that some of the campus leaders really wanted to inject some normalcy back into campus, and that would allow students to kind of get back together and heal. Over 7,000 people, the size of Marshall's entire student body at the time, attend a memorial mass at Veterans Memorial Fieldhouse the week after the crash, where Donald Dedman addresses the mourners. Here's Marshall University archivist Lindsay Harper reading that speech. We know there will be no game today. The game has been called off. But we are human and selfish, and we must cry over their absence. So we have come to their home field to show our affection for them. And we stand together where they gave their all for us. May we feel a little bit closer to us, to them, our brothers. But will the football team go on? Will they play their last game of the season? Some are even asking if there should be a football program at all. But if there is going to be a team, it's obvious who should rebuild it. Red Dawson. He was only 27. He's pretty much one of only a few left in a football program. Red Dawson is a real hero. That is a guy who played a huge role in keeping the program together in the darkest days of martial history. And you can't even imagine what his life was like at that point. Dawson is left with the 30 freshmen and 14 upperclassmen who weren't on the flight. And they want to keep playing. They wanted to play their season finale that next Saturday. They said, we want to play because they knew that their deceased teammates, that's what they wanted to do. Red Dawson is named the team's interim head coach and is joined by Dr. Debman to address the surviving members of the team. He was shaky, and, and of course we all were, for different reasons, I'm sure, but he didn't know what to tell the football team. So I told him, I said, well, uh, assure him that we're going to build the program back, you know, that there's still going to be football at Marshall. Debman assures the Thundering Herd that the football program will indeed continue but that they would not play the final game of the season against Ohio University. After all, by NCAA rules, you would have only had about eight. You couldn't have fielded a side, much less an entire team. And as other Marshall administrators at the time said, they certainly appreciated their strength and their want to move forward. However, a lot of things had to get taken care of. Administrators, coaches, students, and others fly around the country, planning and attending dozens of funerals. We took the coaches and, and Dr. Dedman and all of the administrators at, at Marshall at the time. We divided up the funerals and we all had to cover some of them. And it was devastating. Because I'm sure that there were times when a funeral procession of the cars 
had to stop for another funeral, you know, that was going the other way. So yeah. it was uh, it was hard times, no doubt about it. Meanwhile, despite the grief and turmoil, the coaches know that if Marshall has any chance of putting together a competitive football team, they're going to have to start thinking about the 1971 season. And the coaches are up for the challenge. Starting around Thanksgiving, the surviving coaching staff members, Red Dawson, Mickey Jackson, Carl Coker, and Gail Parker, traveled throughout West Virginia, Ohio, Virginia, Georgia, and Florida on a massive recruiting trip that lasts through the holiday season. Plus, the NCAA creates a new rule during the offseason that becomes a major boost to Marshall's recruitment efforts. For programs that have experienced devastation, referring to Wichita State and Marshall University, freshmen can now play for the varsity squad. I deal with kids getting recruited now, what they like to hear now. You're gonna play immediately. Here you come to Marshall, not only you're gonna play, there's a good chance you're gonna start. The Thundering Herd wind up with 21 new players, including four listed as All-Americans and Coach and Athlete Magazine. Dawson says that this class would rival that of any Big Ten school. But it's still not enough. By the spring, Dawson invites the whole campus to try out, saying that if any Marshall students want to play, they can. They even convince a 6'5", 215-pounder named Rick Turnbow to ditch the Marshall basketball team and play defensive end. The team accepts over 30 walk-on players. They change their nickname for one season from the Thundering Herd to the Young Thundering Herd because they had to play essentially all freshmen. They had a 17-year-old starting at one of their linebacker positions. Marshall enters 1971 with a whole new crop of players, a newly hired head coach, Jack Langle, and the support of seemingly the whole country. America in general had gotten behind Marshall. I mean, there, there were people all over the country who kind of became Marshall fans. We received a lot of letters from community members, from people you probably wouldn't expect to send letters. We got some letters from like second graders who were writing about how sad they were that they lost their favorite team. And they're like, here's my $2.17 of my allowance. Can you please use this to help the family members and help with whatever they need? Even President Richard Nixon sends the team a letter of encouragement. Quote, Friends across the land will be rooting for you. But whatever the season brings, you have already won your greatest victory by putting the 1971 varsity on the field. In the film We Are Marshall, we see the 1971 Thundering Herd, in a classic Hollywood ending, score a dramatic touchdown to beat Xavier for the team's first win since the crash. We Are Marshall, the movie. Are there any details that either left out, tweaked a little bit for the purposes of making a movie? It's an excellent movie, and Red thinks it's a great movie, but as he said, there was some, quote, Hollywood fluff. The movie made it kind of a happy, smooth, you know, kind of transition once they got everything in place to start the 71 season. It was far from it, actually. The real 1971 team wins only two games that season. 
But just the fact that they even had a team was a major accomplishment. The makeup of those teams, this many freshmen starting tailback had been a defensive end in high school, never played. You know, it was stuff like that, that they were having to field against quality competition. Marshall continues to put a team on the field each year. And in 1984, the team finally ends a season with a winning record. Their on-field product ever since has been incredible. You went from the team that lost more games than any other in the decade of the 1960s to a team that in the 1990s won the most of any NCAA Division I FBS or FCS program. That's Steve Cotton, whose voice you may recognize as the radio broadcaster for Marshall Athletics since 1993. A lot of people put a lot of blood, sweat, tears into that, but it certainly showed that you can, just by sheer will, turn something bad into what has become ultimately a success story for Marshall University. Today, the victims of the crash are remembered each year during a November ritual known as the Fountain Ceremony, where students, alumni, and members of the community gather around the Memorial Fountain on campus. Every November 14th, time kind of stands still. And I know that that's a quote from the film, that every November 14th, time stands still. We do have 75 individuals lay rows at the end for each person lost. And we say their names one at a time every single year as um, they are laying down the roses. And we turn off the fountain as that symbolism of that moment of silence that you take to kind of honor and respect their lives. Each spring, the fountain is turned back on, always on the first day of spring football practice. This month marks 52 years since the crash. It's on us now to tell the story as you know, time continues on, you know, there's less and less people who have that first wave of connection. You know, they're not just a name that's said at the fountain. I've got stories and characters and, and you know, somebody was doing something in the locker room or somebody was really good at doing this on the field. And all of a sudden that name becomes a person. The emotional connection that the community has to the team seems to be unparalleled in college sports. Here's John Doc Holliday, head coach for Marshall football from 2010 to 2020, speaking at a fountain ceremony. There are bigger football programs in America than Marshall University, but there's not a football program in America that's more important to their school, more important to their community, more important to their fan base in the entire country than Marshall University. There has been you know, whether that's in newspaper editorials, certain student groups, kind of like, hey, do we need to be reminded of this all the time? Can't we just move on? Why have this fountain ceremony every fall? Well, you know, Marshall's stance and good for them is this is part of us. And we're going to continue to remember these 75 Thanks for listening to Sports History This Week. For moments throughout history that are also worth watching, please check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. Other notable sports stories that happened this week? 1989. The U.S. men's soccer team defeats Trinidad and Tobago 1-0 to secure their first World Cup appearance in four decades. 
It's a huge moment in American soccer history as they would go on to host the World Cup just five years later. And 1894, the daily racing form was first published. It's considered the first time that gamblers at the horse track can find reliable information and odds projections for horse races around the country. If you know of any other stories from global sports history you'd like us to cover on this podcast, or if you'd just like to get in touch, please shoot us an email at sportspod at history.com. Special thanks to our guests, Patrick Garvin, college football journalist and co-author of A Coach in Progress, the memoir of Red Dawson. Kit Darby, our aviation expert. Lori Thompson, the head of special collections, and Lindsay Hunter, the university archivist at Marshall University. And Steve Cotton, radio voice of the Thundering Herd. This episode was produced by David Ingberg. It was story edited by me, Kaylin Jones, and sound designed by the Poglomerate. Sports History This Week is also produced by Cooper McKim. Our senior producer is Ben Dixton. Our associate producers are Emma Fredericks and Hazel May. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn, and our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Sports History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week.